Well, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, the last book, last prophet of the Old Testament. So far in this last book, we've seen that God cares for us to be convinced that he loves us. That's chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. And then we've also seen a second thing, that God cares for his own honor as a great king. Tonight we see the third care of God, and that is that God cares about our relationships, even our marriages. So let me invite you to consider what God says about marriage, whether you are married or one day hope to be. From Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. This is God's word. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we bow before you tonight with all our hurts in our families and experience, with all our fears in our own futures, with all our own frustrations and Even at the outset, we know none of us has been thoroughly faithful in the way that you desire. Forgive us, we pray. And and I pray that you'd speak to us tonight about our marriages, about our relationships, and help help us to love, even like you have loved us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God says, who you marry is important to him. And... How you treat the person you're married to is also important to him. And he gives you a bunch of reasons in here for 
for why he created marriage and what it's for and what its purpose is. So we need God's perspective to be our perspective. God's heart to be our heart. Lack of faithfulness in our relationship with God inevitably results in, in, a, in a brokenness in our relationships with one another. That's why he begins in verse 10 speaking about, don't we have one God? Don't we have one Father? He begins with who he is to us in our relationship with him. And that brokenness in this passage is seen in two ways primarily. Through, on the one hand, religiously mixed marriages, and on the other hand, through divorce. And so uh, tonight we want to think about both those issues, who we marry and how we persist and continue in our marriages. And then we want to think about in the third place, God's reasons for marriage as he spells them out in this passage. And so we want to be strengthened moving forward. And I want to say very quickly at the beginning, at the outset, that, that this sermon is not designed to hurt anybody here. But, but if, if you have experienced being married to an unbeliever, or if you have experienced divorce, we already know that you have experienced much pain and a lot of heartache. And I want you to hear this very clearly. We're not trying to open fresh wounds here with this text. It's the next passage in the book, in the book of Malachi, and God is interested in, in helping us in our relationships. And we need to remember that in Christ we all make a fresh start in life, that that there are no perfect marriage partners in this room. We all sin here in many and perhaps different kinds of ways. And if the gospel means anything, it means Jesus has taken our sins from us and removed them as far as the east is from the west. And there's a fresh start with Jesus. But for those who are not yet married, as well as parents who will give them advice on who they will marry, we need to listen to Malachi's warning about intermarriage or marrying across religious beliefs. And for those who may be contemplating divorce here, we need to listen to Malachi's warning that God gives them. In all of these things, we need to listen to the good lessons about marriage. And so those three things then in the first place, verses 10 through 12, I want you to consider here that God cares about who we marry. Verses 10 through 12 begin with, with God saying, am I not your father? Or Malachi saying, is not God our father? And is he not our creator? And, and, he, and he's speaking here of the Jews, of course, in that day, a people created by God, who'd been adopted into God's family, and God had become a father to them. And uh, it's, in a sense, like this new community we're a part of, the church today. Who God is to us is supposed to shape who we are to one another because we share the same God because we have the same loving father in heaven who's brought us into his family and we worship one God Yahweh Jehovah of the Old Testament the Lord Jesus himself and, and not some other gods and because of that we should keep our marriages in the same spiritual family is what he says but that's not what had been happening in Judah Judah it says has profaned the covenant they've broken faith they have done a detestable thing. He piles up the language here. And how had they done it? Notice he says, they had married the daughter of a foreign god. That's what they had done. 
The men have evidently turned their backs on marrying like-minded believers, and they've begun to marry other women of other faiths. Men in Judah are looking past the godly women and going after perhaps what they find to be perhaps more beautiful or more desirable in some way, or um, in any case, perhaps women who worshipped other gods here. And so, and by the way, what Malachi is saying here is in no way a condemnation in any way or a prohibition of people marrying other nationalities or races. This isn't about, and there are plenty of examples in the Bible of believers marrying outside of ethnic Judaism. Boaz married Ruth, a Moabitess, okay? Uh, the, the Israelites, when they left Egypt, there were, there were thousands and thousands of Egyptians who went out with them. But in both cases, the Egyptians and Ruth had embraced Yahweh as the one true God. So the Bible is not here, and it never does in any place forbid, you know, Christian Canadians from marrying Christian Mexicans or uh, white Christians from marrying black Christians. That is not what this is about. It's not about racial intermarriage or ethnic intermarriage. What Malachi is talking about is believers in the Lord marrying unbelievers. That's what he's describing. And they had been warned about that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. God had said to them, you shall not intermarry with them, meaning the, the nations around them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters uh, for your sons. For, for, why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And God had warned them about doing this. And so serious was this issue that the prophet wishes that the men who are guilty of it be cut off from the people of God. His language is very straightforward here and strong may they verse 12 may the lord cut them off from the tents of jacob he wants them to be uh, excommunicated from the people of god for doing this that's what he's he's wishing for here um the the english standard version which i read we just have to give a little pause it won't be the first time the English Standard Version here uh, translates this to indicate that, that Malachi is wishing that both the man and his descendants should be cut off from the people of God. So you have the language in which I read. And what they're doing is they're interpreting a difficult phrase in one certain way that it does not have to be translated that way. So, for instance, the NIV translates it differently uh, so that... The men, uh, whoever does this, uh, whoever he is, may he be cut off. The New American Standard actually gives you the, the little phrase in Hebrew that's hard to translate. It's hard to know what it means. And, and that phrase is, which you'll even see in the footnote in the ESV, okay? That, that, that little phrase is a, is a little phrase that says, the one who awakes and, and the one answering. And nobody really is certain what that means. Does he mean the descendants? Does, is he referring to, you know, a, a company of Israelites out uh, tent camping at night and they set a night watchman and he awakens the people by calling to them and somebody answers. And what he means is both the one who calls and the one who answers and everybody in between, like from A to Z. 
And, uh, you know, and everybody's. And so in other words, what he would then be saying is, every man, whoever he is, may all of them who do this be cut off from the people of God. That may be what he's saying. It's hard to be certain about it. But why is intermarriage so bad? Why does he wish this for them? Why is this a detestable thing in Israel? We have to ask that question. And the answer is because it leads to apostasy and idolatry and the destruction of the people of God. What are we talking about there? On the one hand, the guy who would do this in ancient Israel, who would marry a non-Jew, is exposing himself to the temptation to leave the faith through the influence of his spouse. I mean, uh, it's, it's not that believers marry unbelievers and, you know, universally the unbelievers come to faith in Jesus. That's not the way it works at all. Ordinarily, not always, but ordinarily, frankly, the typical believer is sort of dragged away by the other beliefs of the non-Christian they've married. Marriage requires all kinds of compromises just in order to get along. And if one worships Yahweh of the Old Testament and one worships Baal or Zeus or some other contemporary God, eventually the couple ends up compromising on their beliefs and practices. And a little of what Baal wants, the couple does and believes. And a little bit of what the God of the Bible wants, the couple does and believes. But they end up mixing the two, typically. And you end up, therefore, falling away from faith in the one true God. And you end up in idolatry, actually worshiping a God who doesn't exist. A a mix of deities. And more than that, you end up damaging the whole community. And that's what he's concerned about. In verse 11, when he says they have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. What's that getting at? Well, again, here, the translations uh, vary because the word sanctuary, there's the word holiness. And to make sense of it, they've either translated it, uh, speaking of the place that is holy to the Lord, therefore the sanctuary, and others translate it, the people who are holy to the Lord, set apart for the Lord, therefore the, 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 the congregation itself, the, the people of God itself whom the Lord loves. And that's the way I take it here. By intermarriage, you end up disrupting the community of God's believing people. Either by the believer marrying an unbeliever and then getting sort of sucked out of the fellowship of God's people. So they never show up and don't really seem that interested anymore. Or by bringing into the company of people a person who doesn't really care about the worship of God and the things of God. But they're now part of the community. And we should pause and say, we, if that's the case, we want to welcome them and love them in any Christian community. But the reality is it, it tends to be disruptive to the faith of the whole people of God. And, and so uh, this is why he forbade it in the Old Testament. But this is also a New Testament idea. It's reiterated in the New Testament for Christians explicitly. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, it says, Paul says that Christians are to marry only in the Lord. And that means a Christian. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Paul says, don't be unequally bound to one another, committed to one another. So Christians are to only marry other Christians. It would be unfaithful to Jesus to defy him at this point. And it would be foolish for yourself. It's only going to lead to heartache. I mean, if two people don't share the same chief love of life, Jesus, and they don't have the same chief end goal in life, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, eventually, friends, they're going to have nothing in common. And they're going to grow incredibly frustrated with one another and tired of one another over time. And if you marry a non-Christian, they are more likely to lead you away from Jesus than you are to lead them to faith in Jesus. Now, has it ever happened that way? That a Christian married a non-Christian and God in his grace brought that spouse to faith in Jesus? Of course it has. Absolutely. But against God's own command. Because he's gracious and generous. But you're playing with fire. And more often than not, it's the other way around. And that always ends tragically and with misery. Because Jesus said, I have the words of eternal life. And there is no one else you can go to. And if you leave him, where will you go? So I want to say this. If you're dating or thinking about dating, don't missionary date. Missionary dating is where you date people in order to try to convert them to faith in Jesus. Don't, don't do that. Why? Because you're playing with your heart and you're playing with their heart and you're both going to get hurt when to obey Jesus, you have to say one day, I cannot marry you. Why expose yourself to the kind of intimacy that would lead to that kind of pain? It's not to say that you can't be friends with and friendly with. All kinds of unbelievers. Oh, we ought to be. But guard your hearts, friends. Now, what if a Christian, what if you are a Christian and you are already married to a non-Christian? Either because you came to faith later after you got married or because you had actually disobeyed Jesus at this point. What should you do? Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. He, He instructs us when he says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, And she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, is not bound to the relationship God has called us to live in peace, Paul says. So the Bible is clear. Stay with your partner. You love them, and you pray for them, and you show them the love of Jesus every day. So so this, then, is the first issue, uh, the issue of intermarriage. And the second issue is the issue of divorce. In verses 13 through 16, he turns to this, and he says, God cares not only about who you marry, but God cares about how you treat the person you're married to. So the men, in verses 13 through 16, he says, this second thing they do, And men who are married 
are divorcing their wives, the wife, he says, of their youth. And the men sent them away. Perhaps they were looking for uh, younger wives or prettier wives, maybe unbelieving wives. And while they were doing this, he says, you know what else they were doing? They were continually coming to God's worship and offering piously their offerings in the temple. But the Lord, it says, didn't answer them. He didn't pay attention to their prayers. He wouldn't hear it. And then these men, it says, what did they do? Well, these men who are defiantly rebellious in their hearts, what were they doing? They were weeping and wailing at the altar of God. Why does he not accept our offerings? Why does he not listen to us when we pray? Why does he not pay attention? That's what they were saying. And it's because the Lord wasn't pleased. He, verse 14, it says, is a witness to their covenant, their covenant marriage. And he's paying attention to the vows they have made and whether they're carrying them out. Unless you think that's so Old Testament that God's paying attention to how you keep your vow, then listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, when he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered, Peter says. God is not a passive bystander to the marriage vows we take. And he acts, he says, to protect the wife and the man who mistreats her. He opposes, is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. In fact, he described divorce here as a kind of violence to the relationship that brings pain. He says to the, to the man who does not love his wife, but covers his garment with violence. Covenant his garment, an Old Testament expression for marriage. You see that in Boaz and Ruth. He's covered it with violence if he divorces her, he's saying. Now some translations, put pause again. Some translations say, I hate divorce, says the Lord. And so maybe you didn't hear me read that and you're wondering what that means. The, the phrase is he hates and the question who is who is the he. And some translators have said that he is God. So therefore it's saying God hates divorce. And others translators have said, no, it's the man, the man who hates and divorces. Perhaps he divorces because he hates, hates. And the ESV has even softened it to say the man who does not love his wife. It divorces. So again, a little translation issue there. But the idea is this. God is opposed to this. There are many divorces that God forbids. And, and Jesus quoting Moses in the New Testament where God in the Old Testament permitted divorce under certain circumstances says specifically that it was because of the hardness of our hearts that God allowed a man to write a woman a certificate of divorce and to let her go. It was because of our hard hearts, but that's not how it was at the beginning when God made Adam and Eve. His intention was that we remain faithful to one another. That's what it is called for. So what's being for forbidden here is what's called aversion divorce. That is divorce because of dislike. Divorce because a husband perhaps has lost interest in his wife and he doesn't want to be married to her anymore. Or because he found another woman who's more interesting to him. And that's an extremely common issue 
in our own day. And God is against that. But there are some kinds of divorces God permits. You remember again the Lord Jesus speaking about this issue. says that God allows divorce if adultery has already occurred. Because the adultery itself is already a form of divorce. A form of tearing apart of the, the one flesh union of the two by the inclusion of a third. Likewise, the Bible allows divorce in in cases of uh, desertion. If one party uh, deserts the marriage and flees the marriage for the same reasons. It's a kind of divorce in the very activity of itself. But those are the only two reasons in the Bible that we are permitted to divorce. You don't have to stay married to somebody who's already left you in your marriage by joining another or by abandoning you. The Bible says, though you can stay with them if you're willing to forgive them and want to work at reconciliation. So divorce even then isn't required. But falling out of like with someone is never a justification for divorce, according to the Bible. And that happens again and again within, frankly, almost any marriage. Because God has designed marriage to be sort of a furnace in which God is, is uh, bringing cleansing to us by exposing our sin, raising it up out of the, the pure gold like dross and sloughing it away. Marriage is hard. And we're going to see one another at our worst. And we're going to see the impurities and know our own. And the hidden fears and the love of self and And the excuse making for who we are, who they are. And and there are times where we're going to say to ourselves, I don't think I like this person very much. But that is not a justification, according to the Bible, to leave that person. God is bringing those things to light to burn them off by the light of his grace. And so, so, of course, there will be times where you simply just don't like the person you're married to. You'll be tempted to say, I wish I had someone better. You'll be tempted to say, I wish my spouse would die so that I could be free to marry another. You might be tempted in all those ways, friends. And when a Christian comes up against those temptations in marriage and the inevitable imperfections, and they say, I wish I had someone better, that Christian is also to say, and that someone better is them. That someone better is them, because what is God doing with them? God is determined to make them like himself. And he who began a good work in them will carry it on to perfection until the day of Christ Jesus. And so God is committed to them, we say, to making them perfect. And so I'll stick it out with them too. This is what God calls us to. But what if the romance is gone in your marriage? Well, I want to say this. Romance is helpful. It's important. We encourage it. The Bible does. Song of Solomon does. It can be nurtured, but romance is occasional. Nobody can wake up every day and keep on romancing their spouse every day to win their heart. At some point, the spouse needs to say, I'm in. I'm here. That's what the wedding vow is about. 
You don't have to woo me and win me every day. Now, men, go woo and win your wife. Do it. She'll love it. But at some point, the spouse says, I'm not going anywhere. I've committed to you. And so it's a heart issue, friends. It's not, it's not found in what the other person does. It's found as an issue of your own heart. Are you committed to this person or not? But what if you are already divorced and remarried? Then the Apostle Paul would say this, love the spouse you are with. In God's providence, it is now the person you are with. Love that person now. And so he tells us two things. He tells us who we are to marry. We're not to marry outside the faith. And he tells us how we are to be married, to remain faithful in marriage. And throughout this passage, we see a positive picture of divorce. He, he gives us five or six reasons why God gave marriage and what we ought to be aiming at. And very briefly, I want to run through those five or six things with you as we close. Number one, what's marriage for? What should we be aiming for? Number one, marriage is for helping one another walk with God. There's a spiritual purpose for marriage. That was the, I'm going to show you that in the passage here in a second. That was the first reason ever given for marriage in the Bible. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, when God had created Adam and not yet Eve, right prior to creating Eve, he had, he had placed Adam in the garden and he had said, Adam, do what? Worship and serve me. And immediately in the next verse, he says, and it was not good that Adam should be alone and he needs a helper suitable for him. Helper for what? Just having a good time? No, a helper in worshiping and serving the Lord God and enjoying his grace and goodness. We need help in that, friends. And, and you see that here when he says, don't marry the daughter of a foreign God. She's not going to help you enjoy the Lord. She has a different God. So if you marry an unbeliever, so, so marry another believer, he says, and it will help you spiritually. That's the purpose of marriage. And the second purpose of marriage you hear, you see in this text is that marriage is for companionship. It, it, just as it was not good for Adam to be alone in the garden, and lonely, and he needed a lifelong friend and companion. So Malachi says, she is your companion and the wife of your youth. He reminds them of that very language of companionship, partnership, lifelong friendship. And I would ask you, are we who are married investing in our friendship with our spouse? Listen, it is easy for work and for hobbies and for raising kids, and for serving in the church, and for doing all kinds of things, even good things. It is easy for those things to take over and be substitutes for and get in the way of investing in our friendship with our spouse. You've got to make time for this. It's what marriage is for. But the third thing marriage is for is, is it is for pleasure. And I think he reminds you of this when he says, she is your companion and the wife of your youth. Now, why do I say he's, he's referencing the idea of marriage being for pleasure? Well, this is a rare expression in the Old Testament. It reminds us on the one hand that the Jews typically did marry young in the bloom of youth with all its strength and beauty. But Proverbs 5 is the first use of this expression in the Bible, and the only other one is in Isaiah, where he uses it the same way Malachi does to indict them. 
But the positive purpose in, Malachi, in, in Proverbs 5, verse 18, is to say we should enjoy one another when he says in Proverbs 5, 5, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, a graceful doe. Guys, don't call her that. She doesn't know what that means. A loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated with her love. The Bible commands drunkenness in marriage. Not on alcohol, but at the breast of your wife. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so marriage is for righteous pleasure. And I think that, that language of the wife of your youth reminds them that that we need to invest time in one another, to delight in one another. That's the purpose of marriage. And of course, Malachi is really piling on here. He's saying you're leaving her. She gave you the best years of her life. She gave you the, the years of her, her youthful beauty and strength. And you wore her out and you're going to turn your back on her now? And abandon her? That's what he's saying to her. Remember the wife of your youth, he says, and be grateful and faithful. And so then there's a fourth thing he says that marriage is for, and it's found in verse 15. Again, in what commentators almost universally call perhaps the most difficult verse in the Bible to translate. We're actually, we're really pretty unsure of some of the things that it says, but what is clear is the last phrase that one of the purposes of marriage is that God is seeking godly offspring. What was, God, what was the one God seeking? Why did he give the spirit of God? Or whatever your translation says, what was it God was looking for? He was looking for a godly parent, mom and dad together, to pass on the faith to their children. That's what the Lord was aiming at. So if the Lord provides, if and when, that's one of the purposes of marriage. And in the fifth place, marriage is for the protection of the relationship. She is your wife, he says. She's not only your companion and the wife of your youth. She is your wife by covenant, he says. You bound yourself to her. You forsook all others. And as long as you both shall live, you said, I will be yours. And she said she would be yours. You, you engaged in a covenant relationship. Listen, our culture says, you don't need that. People say, why do I need a piece of paper to say that we're married? I mean, really, isn't it enough that I love you? I don't need a big ceremony. I don't need a, a wedding uh, to be intimate with you. If we love one another, let's just live together. Let's just sleep together. I mean, what could be wrong? What could be wrong with that? What's the big deal? We're happy. But behind, behind that kind of thinking, friends, is this idea. Think about it. It is to say this, because I feel a certain way about you, I am for all practical purposes married to you. And the essence of marriage in that scenario becomes the feelings of the person. But marriage in the Bible is never defined by the way that you feel. Most marriages in the Bible were arranged marriages. You didn't even take a look at the person you were going to marry until mom and dad had picked them out and brought you two together, and sometimes until they lifted the veil. How could it be based on feelings? No, 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 no. 
Marriage is defined as a covenant in which you obligate yourself to the responsibility of being a loving and faithful husband or a loving and faithful wife. In sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as you both shall live. It's not a sentiment and it's not a feeling. The, the vow is not an expression of the fact that you love this person. It is a commitment to love that person in the future. I will give myself in service to you, come whatever may. C.S. Lewis put it this way, love as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. See, friends, what we're saying is it is not love that keeps a marriage going. It's actually the marriage that invites the love to keep going. It's not love that keeps the covenant going. It's the covenant relationship that creates the context in which love can blossom and grow. So this is vital, friends. Marriage is given for the protection of that relationship. And finally, marriage was given for the protection of the more vulnerable one in that relationship. Who's that? Almost always the woman. As she ages, she becomes less likely to find a new spouse. And she often gave up years or even decades of work experience to care for the family. And it's much more difficult for her to provide for herself if he casts her off. She usually gets custody of the kids, not always, and usually has the added expenses of raising the children. And all of that means at least that she is more likely, and stats bear it out, she is more likely to become economically poor upon divorce. He does violence to her, is what the Bible says. So marriage protects the more vulnerable by telling the man he can't use her up and throw her away. That she who has given 100% of herself to him, he should give 100% of himself to her. God is protecting her in that way. So these are all things, friends, that marriage is for. It's for our spiritual health. It's for our companionship and friendship. It's for the pleasures of the marriage bed. It's for godly children, should he give them. It's for the protection of the relationship. And it's for the protection of the vulnerable in the marriage relationship. So he says, do what? Guard yourselves. Guard your heart, he says. Be careful. That's what he says. With God's help, you are to serve the other in love until death parts you. Does marriage then scare you? Maybe it should. There is only one place where we can go for love like that. There's only one place where we can get the power to be faithful to that kind of commitment, friends. And that is to go to the ultimate covenant maker and covenant keeper, Jesus, who loved a bride, wooed her, 
won her and remains faithful to her, even in the midst of her sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, that we need Jesus tonight. We need him to save our souls, and we need him to save, rescue, guard, and protect our marriages. Would you come to the aid of your people, we pray in his name. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord in song.